Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture reading comes from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Chesney. Thank you, Dr. Riegert and Tamara and everybody. It is good to see everybody on this third Sunday of Epiphany. I'll be honest with you, I have uh, thought and prayed more about this sermon than any I have in recent memories because I am fully aware that at the conclusion of today's sermon, some of you may be frustrated, uh, somewhere in the spectrum between frustrated and furious, and that's the way it goes when you're a preacher sometimes. I hope that you will hear from God today, and In keeping with our theme for this particular sermon series in Epiphany, Stay Curious, I hope that you will remain curious. Let me tell you, the quickest way to damage your faith is to somehow believe that you have it figured out. (laughs) The, The moment that you feel like, oh, I know for sure that you become a threat, not only to yourself, but to the people around you, Christians learn and grow. Christians remain curious. If during Advent, the desired posture is one of hopeful anticipation, the desired posture for Epiphany is one of curiosity and and discovery. When we discover, when we learn just how big this God is, when we learn about the breadth and the width of God, the breadth and the width of God's grace and love, the breadth and the width of the mission of God, handed then to us. So during Epiphany, if no other time of the year, during Epiphany, learn, be open to learning about God, learn more about the mission of God, learn and maintain and cultivate a sense of curiosity about those whom God loves particularly your enemies. Those that you would judge to be in the enemy category. Those who understand themselves to be in your enemy category. If you aren't curious, then you're going to be judgmental, as modern-day prophet Ted Lasso tells us. Now, some of you don't know what this is about. My friend Ron does. This has become perhaps my favorite show of all time. I don't know. It is one of those streaming shows. It's on the Apple TV 
channel. Be curious and not judgmental. There's a video clip that, that bears this out. I'm going to play it for you, but let me set it up for you. They are actually in a pub in England, but this is an American, American football coach who has gone to England to coach soccer. Just a huge scandal, the whole thing. Worse yet, the team's owner, Rebecca, has now taken ownership of the team from her ex-husband, who is a scoundrel. And all this ex-husband wants to do is humiliate Rebecca. And so, Coach Lasso has had enough of it, and so there is this giant high-stakes darts game between Rupert, the ex-husband, the scoundrel, and Ted, the coach. Mate, what do I need to win? Two triple twenties and a bonsai. <laughs> Good luck. All right, we're gonna need sounds. Let's back it up until we can get some sound for it. Yo, Rupert. Guys have underestimated me my entire life. Nope. And for years, I'm... We good up there for sound? Are we, are we, we good for sound now, Nicole, you think? Okay. All right, let's try again. Mate, what do I need to win? Two triple twenties and a bullseye. All right. <laughs> good luck. Doesn't seem like we do. All right, so he says, oh, quoting Guys Walt Whitman, be curious and not judgmental. Be curious and not judgmental. And, and we should recognize here, there are a lot of people who aren't sure that Walt Whitman actually said be curious and not judgmental. This is old man Walt Whitman. I think the evidence is pretty good that he did say it, be curious and not judgmental. And if he didn't say it directly, it can be inferred from a lot that of what he said. I will say this to you. He did write a poem, though, that was entitled, Be Not Curious About God. It's a terrible epiphany posture. Terrible epiphany posture. Here I am. I've just said to you, I want you to be curious about this God. I want you to be curious about this God. By the way, folks, there is a video at the end that I hope, if we can try to sort through those sound issues, that would be great. <clears throat> but he did write, Be Not Curious About God. But I think there is some reason that he said this. If, if Whitman were alive today, he might have said something like this. I'm not very religious. See, have you heard this before? But I'm very spiritual. And a lot of times people say such a thing because they are absolutely disenchanted by what they have understood to be the practice of religion. The practice of religion. And so in this poem, Be Not Curious About God, Whitman says, why should I wish to see God better than this day? He says, I see something of God each hour in the 24, and each moment then, in the faces of men and women I see God, in my own face, in the glass. I find letters from God dropped in the street, and everyone is signed by God's name. And I leave them where they are, for I know that where, wheresoever I go, Others will punctually come forever and ever. And so it's not that Whitman doesn't believe in God. He seems, though, in this moment, to think it's a waste of time to worry about the nature or the character of God. He says, besides, God is everywhere and in everything. It seems to be religion and perhaps even theology that he seems to hate. Again, this is a guy that I can hear saying, I am not religious, but I am very spiritual. But I want to know why. What did religion ever do to Whitman? Are there any clues? And it turns out 
there are lots of clues. Take, for example, in 1861, Whitman's brother was wounded at the Battle of Fredericksburg. And we will talk more about Fredericksburg. We have talked at least twice before about the Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh, Whitman, in 1861, already was a person of some notoriety. So he went to visit his brother at Fredericksburg and ended up being recognized by soldiers from both sides. And he handed out gifts to people, soldiers on both sides. But he wrote back to his mother about what he had seen the awful loads and trains and boatloads of poor, bloody and pale and wounded young men again and again. He said, it's dreadful when one thinks about it. I sometimes think over the sights I have myself seen, the arrival of the wounded after a battle, the scenes on the field too, and I can hardly believe my own recollections. What an awful thing war is, mother. It seems not men, but a lot of devils and butchers butchering each other. History buffs in the room will remember that religious language was not absent from the battles of the Civil War. That there were people who were invoking the name of God to somehow justify or explain their movements in battle. Now, I know this doesn't make any sense to us today. I mean, Why would it make sense to us today? A nation divided, and perhaps each side, but I would submit more than one than the other, saying, God's on our side, and so we will. Whitman sounds like so many that I have heard even recently. Folks who have not come back to our church And it's not just because of the pandemic, it's because of what has been done in the name of religion. Listen, it's because of what has been done in the name of the God that you and I are here to sing about today. Be curious, not judgmental, because when you're judgmental, eventually you'll be the reason somebody doesn't come back to faith. In other words, Walt Whitman would have hated Jonah. (laughs) A couple things about Jonah. Yes, that Jonah. From the book of Jonah. Who is sort of awarded the title of prophet, though I think there is ample scriptural evidence that Jonah was not only a bad prophet, Jonah seems to have been a terrible person. A failure. He gets a book in the Bible, but it's not because of his shining example. It's because of God's grace. Like literally, literally. It's because of God's grace that we know anything about Jonah. I I don't want to poke any more holes than I need to today, but I will tell you this. There is not much about Jonah to be emulated, if anything. There is a lot to be emulated about God, especially the God that we see in the face of Jesus. Jonah will will play an opposing role today. Be prepared for that. We hear about Jonah actually earlier in the Bible, in 2 Kings chapter 14. Jonah is a northern kingdom prophet. Israel 
He is a northern kingdom prophet, and here is what he is saying. The son of Amittai prophesied that Israel would recover and prosper even though sinful patterns of abuse, injustice, and idolatry continued unabated. Jonah promised that the northern kingdom of Israel would become great again by recovering the land and prestige that had been lost under previous rebellious kings. Jonah literally says, we'll get it all back because we're us. Look it up. 2 Kings chapter 14. Jonah was wrong. Jonah was an unconditional Israelite nationalist. And he was wrong. Not only would Israel not recover what they lost, they would be wiped out, like no longer exist as an entity, wiped out by the Assyrians, whose capital city at one point would be the city of Nineveh. Nineveh. Jonah hated Assyria. (laughs) He hated Assyria. He especially hated that great city, which I'm sure God said, and God said it three times just to get under Jonah's skin. I'm sure he hated Nineveh because it was a great city in Assyria. And here's why he hated them. Because the Assyrians were not just enemies of Israel. They weren't Israel. And so it was Jonah, (laughs) in God's own sense of humor, who was picked to prophesy against Nineveh. Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee. Essentially, this is what Jonah did. He went as far from Nineveh as he could. As far from, in the opposite direction. He went as far as he could away from obedience. Because he had chosen Israel over the voice of God. Super important that you hear me say that. Jonah chose loyalty to Israel over loyalty to the voice of God. I've seen that recently. Now, why did Jonah disobey? Was it because he feared Nineveh and the Assyrians? Maybe. Was it because he hated them and wanted them to burn at God's hand? Probably Chapter 4, though, tells us, and we'll get to it, chapter 4 tells us pretty plainly why he went, pretty plainly, why he went to Tarshish, or at least tried to, at least. It was because he was afraid that God would show grace to Israel's enemies. That's why. I don't want to do this, God, because then you may not destroy Israel's enemies. And I really want you to destroy my, I mean, Israel's enemies. But God stopped him. (laughs) Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came up upon the sea that the ship he was on threatened to break up, and the sailors were terrified. They're like, what have we done? Jonah said, it's probably me, you guys. I'm running from God's voice. It's probably my fault. And they said, well, then what should we do? And Jonah said, okay, well, then you probably ought to just throw me overboard. If you're willing to save yourselves, you probably have to throw me overboard. And at first they said, no, we can't do that. You're a human being. Later they said, okay, you're going. (laughs) Overboard, you're going. 
He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you, because I know it's because of me that this great storm has come upon you. And so they do. They throw him overboard. But as you know, there was a giant fish that I think looked exactly like that that was sent to swallow up Jonah to keep him from dying. God showed grace to Jonah in Jonah's moment of ultimate rebellion. Because that's what God does. God shows grace to Jonah in Jonah's moment of ultimate rebellion. If only Israel would have listened and received this grace. Jonah even testifies to this grace in chapter 2. It's essentially a psalm that we have from Jonah who is saying right out loud, God, thank you for the fish. Because without the fish, I'd be dead. Verse 2, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, and yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And technically, we aren't really told how he gets out of the belly of the fish. There's just kind of gross to think about, really. But he does. And God comes calling again. And now we'll hear the verses that Chesney read for us today. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, if you didn't hear me the first time, maybe you should listen to me this time. Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, <laughs> and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah gets up and he goes. He goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city. Now hear this. Three days walk across. Jonah so hates Nineveh. He can't make it all three days across. According to Scripture, Jonah began to go into the city. But he just went a day's walk. That's worse than half-hearted. That's like third-hearted, right? Proclaiming 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And watch what happened. And the people of Nineveh believed God. A guilty people Still, history records that this was a ruthless, dangerous people. But the people of Nineveh in that moment, having heard from God via Jonah, third-hearted as he was, changed. Changed. We're willing to change everything. If you don't believe it, listen to what the king says. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, symbols of sorrow and repentance. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Remember, Epiphany is about the breadth and the width of the kingdom of God. The breadth and the width of the reach of God, the breadth and the width of the mission of God reaches all the way to Nineveh, the enemy of Jonah and Israel. I just need to tell you right now, the grace of God is available to your mortal enemies. And when that's the case, you can't treat them like your mortal enemies and all God's people should say, hope I didn't bully you into that one. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. 
They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, even the animals. And they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil and from the violence that is in their hands. And who knows, said the king, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Everybody is aware at this point, right, that the king was hoping for grace. But Jonah was hoping against that same grace. Why? Because he was a nationalist. His soul belonged to his nation, not to his God. Sure is quiet. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. See, ultimately, though we are using the language here of God changing God's mind, I think what this really means is that God didn't change God's mind about the Ninevites. The news was good. And everybody in Nineveh was happy except the man of God. It was actually the man of Israel. Look at Jonah, chapter 4. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. Kill me. If you're not going to kill them, kill me. Because I can't stand to be on the same planet with them anymore. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, what are you doing? I think you know this story, but just in case you don't, this is how the story of Jonah ends. <laughs> so Jonah went out of the city, Nineveh, and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city because I think in his heart of hearts he thought, these are Ninevites, they're not going to change and God is going to wipe them out anyway and I want a front row seat to see my enemies die. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, I love that line, and attacked the bush so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die again. And he said, it is better for me to die, to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, why are you so mad about the bush now? He said, yes, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you are concerned about this bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about your enemies, Israel's enemies, Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And by the way, God says, I love the animals too. 
Buckle up. Nationalism runs counter to the posture we are practicing during Epiphany. God is God of all. God extends grace to all. Nationalism has no interest in grace given to everyone, only us and our own. The other nations and kindreds and tribes on this celestial ball are enemies who exist only to be defeated. (laughs) Jonah's nationalism is showing. He prefers his own and misrepresents the heart of God in being nationalistic. Now listen. I love a good patriot. Here's how I draw a distinction. A patriot loves his or her country and wishes to serve it. A nationalist idolizes his or her country and ultimately will deny Christ, at least the lordship of Christ, in the process. Every single time. The citizen of Epiphany, let's say, lives to extend the mission of God and the purposes of God to all peoples, all nations, because, people, that's who God is. Please listen to me. The nationalist lives to extend the mission of the nation and the purposes of the nation as he or she understands them and is willing to enlist God in the process and co-opt the movements of our liturgy as a marketing strategy. Citizens of Epiphany are Christians who happen to be Americans. Nationalists are Americans who have gone to church often enough to know the words but are not as of yet new creations. You need to know that Jonah was chosen for this particular assignment in order to cast judgment on his prophetic career. Jonah was a failure. But God, even in Jonah's failure, seems to be trying to talk him out of his nationalism because in this moment of ultimate failure, there is still grace offered to Jonah. What happened on January the 6th was bad enough. Bad enough. It was a nightmare. It played out on our screens. You and I should be particularly concerned about the ways in which God's name was used in vain in the process. Prayers in the occupied rooms of the Capitol? Prayers to which God? It's a video of a man standing outside who said this. If you died today and went to heaven, can you look George Washington in the face and say that you fought for this country? Listen, if you're going to heaven to look for George Washington in the face, you've lost the beat. Actually, when I read that quote or saw that quote, I thought of another quote, a passage in Jim Forrest's book. It's entitled, Loving Our Enemies. 
If I cannot find the face of Jesus in the face of those whom I regard as enemies, if I cannot find him in the unbeautiful and damaged, if I cannot find him in those who have the wrong ideas, if I cannot find him in the poor and in the defeated and the damaged, then how will I find him in bread and wine or in the life after death? If I do not reach out in this world to those with whom he has identified, then why do I imagine that I will want to be with him and them in heaven? Why would I want to be for all eternity in the company of those I avoided every day of my life? And I would say avoided or persecuted. I mentioned earlier that Whitman's brother had been wounded in the Battle of Fredericksburg. Here's where we've talked about this particular battle before. You think we're good sound-wise up there? We think we're good? We're going to give it a shot. If it doesn't work, I can tell the story. There was a man fought on the side of the South. Again, I've talked about this before, by the name of Richard Roland Kirkland. He was there at the Battle of Fredericksburg. There was a wall that was built. The North tried to rush this wall coming across a large valley. I've been there. I saw the whole thing. I didn't see that. I'm not that old. I'm close to that old, but... I've seen the battlefield. I can envision what it must have looked like. It was a no-win situation for all those Union soldiers running across that valley up to that wall, and sure enough, they got picked off dozens at a time. And there they were, there they were, left all night, agonizing out loud. And a young soldier on the side of the South named Richard Roland Kirkland, himself a believer, couldn't take it. I hope this works out. Kirkland is stationed behind the wall with his comrades, and he's struggling to sleep. In the field before him, in the darkness, there are thousands of Union soldiers, some of them dead and dying, some of them wounded, and some of them who are actually stuck because they were unable to retreat to their lines. And they're actually laying on the battlefield, hiding behind the bodies of their comrades, trying not to be picked off by sharpshooters, uh, who were using that almost as a, as a shooting gallery. Kirkland. And his comrades, they're trying to sleep, and the, the skies are filled with the smell of smoke, the smell of, of the burning buildings in the city, the smell of the artillery that were at the top of the hill. Um, there's this burnt sense that permeates the entire air in front of him. And then the sound of the wounded, the cries of these Union soldiers that were trapped on the field, moaning and groaning, some of them crying for their mothers and their wives, some of them praying, and some of them just outright crying. And it had to weigh very heavily on the conscience of those soldiers that were on the other side of the wall because they had been the ones that dealt this death blow. So Kirkland's conscience, I think, takes over. And it's no longer an irritable nuisance that's preventing him from sleeping, but it's something that really touches his heart, and he feels the need to do something. So as the sun rises, Kirkland goes to his superior officers and petitions permission to leave the sanctity and safety of the wall, to go out into the battlefield, and to administer aid to the enemy. He is turned down again and again, but he remains persistent. Eventually, he is told that he's allowed to leave his position and render aid, but he cannot do so under a white flag of surrender. So gathering up as many canteens as he could, Kirkland climbs over the wall into no man's land and begins wading through all of these blue battered bodies in front of him, giving water 
to those that are still alive. Now, federal sharpshooters that are positioned in some of the buildings looking down into the field think that Kirkland is out there trying to rob these men of their boots, maybe their watches, you know, other valuables that they may have. And they begin taking shots at him. And by the grace of God, he does not get hit. And eventually they realize that he's not robbing these men. He's actually administering aid to them. So they give a great cheer. And his men behind the wall give, give a great cheer. And for one hour, as he goes back and forth over the wall, refilling canteens and administering aid to as many men as he can, he has essentially stopped the entire American Civil War in Virginia. I would submit that's not what we saw on January 6th. And now for the hard questions. Am I, are you, are we more Jonah or Richard Roland Kirkland? Do we, in big or small ways, embody nationalism more than epiphany? I'm here to tell you that nationalism bathed in religious language is costing us people. Like Whitman, they want no part of religion that looks or sounds like that, like the religion of Jonah. On the other hand, there is something compelling to people of all ages about the posture we see in Richard Roland Kirkland, who risked his life going over the wall to offer food and water and comfort to his sworn enemies. Maybe that's what Jesus meant when Jesus said, love your enemies. Nationalists find it very difficult To love their enemies. To be Christian is to be odd in this world. It is to love our enemies. And I know it's a tall order. I know it's a difficult task. That's why we every week approach the table, albeit differently, these days during a pandemic. If you didn't already get one of these communion element cups, would you please raise your hand and we will see to it that you get them. Okay, Aaron, we have some here at the back. If you didn't get one, you need one. I promise you need it. <laughs> I promise we all need it. Please raise your hand. Aaron here, this, this strikingly handsome young man here needs one right there. Yes, Doug is what I meant, but also my son Drew. Does everybody remember this? Try to say this as often as I can remember to say it. We every week consume this bread of life. <laughs> every week. If we could do it twice a week, I think I'd want to do it twice a week. Here, here's why. I want us to eat so much bread that we think, man, we're starting to become bread. You are what you eat. 
bread that is taken, blessed, broken, and given, what would it look like for you to become the bread that is taken, blessed, broken, and given to all? Heavenly Father, bless these elements. Simple, small pieces of bread. Small sips from the cup. But God, in your hands, they are something more. Bless these elements, God, and with them strengthen us to be your people in ways that we could not have imagined otherwise. God, strengthen us with bread and cup so that we can be less like Jonah and more like Richard Roland Kirkland. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, held it up before them, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, broken for you because this is what love does, broken for you. So now, throughout the sanctuary, if you would, take this bread, take, break, and eat. In the same way, after dinner, he would take the cup and hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink it, including today, the 24th of January, 2021, in a country divided, feels like perhaps moving towards something that might look like a civil war, perhaps this is what has to happen. The blood of a new covenant communicated in this moment and then beyond this moment by obedient people like us. He held the cup up before them and said, this is it, my blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, including today, remember me. So church now, take and drink. Heavenly Father, we confess that we too, like Jonah, can get swept up in the fervor. We have that in us. We confess, God, that we have it in us to hate those who aren't us. We confess, God, that we are more like Jonah and less like Richard Roland Kirkland, more than we would like. And now I'd like to ask you to pray a simple prayer of confession in your own life. If this resonates with you, time to pray that personal prayer of confession. God, as we cry out against hatred, let us not in, fall into the trap of hating those who hate. And now, church, hear this prayer. May the Almighty God have mercy on us and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life.